Hello, welcome back. Um, my name is Lou Jansen Dangzhao, and I'm an immigration lawyer. Welcome back to Imlight. Will, how are you doing today? I'm doing very good, my friend. Very tired. It's been a busy day, a lot of announcements, but I'm grateful to be here for this show. Uh, I'm speaking today from the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Kaikat Nations here in Burnaby, British Columbia. And I'm speaking today from the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations here in Mississauga, Ontario. And we both go by gendered pronouns, he and him. Today's guest needs very little introduction. He is an immigration lawyer in Alberta who has a huge following on social media, and he's got a very interesting background. And as I said in the previous episode, this is quite a coup that Will managed to pull off. Mark Holdy has a busy schedule, so we're very grateful to have him with us today. Will actually appeared about a month ago on Mark's YouTube show where he live streams every week. And I understand you're going to be on his show soon as well. Yeah, next month. I'm really excited. So from CBSA to the CBA, we're going to hear from Mark Holthy as, he, as we trace his career and draw inspiration from how he practices immigration law and what philosophy drives him. Without further ado, let's welcome in Mark. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. How are you guys doing? So uh, I'm good. So before we actually ask you to, um, you know, we, we dive into your background, we'd like to talk to you very quickly about today's um, immigration updates. Will and I were just chatting very briefly about how crazy this day has been. And I actually watched your live stream today where you talked about your thoughts on uh, the new programs. Actually, I was just wondering, could you in three broad strokes talk about the implications of inviting what's deemed to be low-skilled or semi-skilled workers into uh, you know, Canada as permanent rents, residents in the context of the pandemic. Yeah, so just recently I had a meeting with the Conference Board of Canada and they're doing some research on this. And um, I know what the statistics say that usually individuals that have higher human capital have a greater likelihood of, of accomplishing whatever we deem as success in Canada. But I say, screw that. I'm a farm kid. I grew up on a farm. And one of the things I've said repeatedly is my father had a grade six education and my mother had a grade 10. And she went on and became a frontline health worker. She became a, a, an LPN. And I think of what my parents did in our community. My mother, she set up this, you know, this mini rodeo for the kids, you know, in our, our summer fairs, they volunteered, they did so much. They were the pillars of my small little rural community and they had no master's degree or anything. So I'm sure statistics show from a financial economic standpoint that people with higher human capital have, you know, overall general, you know, they're, they're, they generally do or fare better economically and they pay more taxes and things. But my goodness, if that's the only measuring stick that we have, well, we're, we're missing the mark. Yes, it's important, but I love this development. So in Alberta, we already had this, really. Alberta Opportunity Stream um, already uh, invited people who had a job offer that were in, you know, knock C and D in our province. So we have never had an issue with it, but I, I just love it. It is so amazing to actually reward good people who've already shown that they've been, been willing to invest and give their lives, literally in some cases for us, and, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, levels planning, who cares? I, you know, whether it's going to help the liberals to, to meet their planning, whatever, I don't care. The, the issue is it's giving people an opportunity and we'll see, right? There's, there's this, these, this is bigger news than, than draw 176, the Feb 13ers. 
it's it's crazy. This is going to have way larger implications than that. And CBOC, Conference Board of Canada, their National Immigration Centre, they're they're already tracking the 176ers. That's what they're going to do, a longitudinal study to see how it plays out. So we'll find out once and for all. Is high human capital really the, you know, the be-all measure for economic and otherwise success settling in Canada? We'll see. So this is exciting. I was just saying, uh, Mark, do you think Express Entry, I know that's your bread and butter and, and, and you've literally built a course around that. What is, what is the future horoscope look like for, for Express Entry? Do you think it's going to be still there or is it going to be modified or what, what do you think yeah, the future is? Yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's going anywhere. Like, I, Will, I really think that this is just, this is a Band-Aid, right? At least in terms of um, the levels planning, trying to reach this, well, 401, whatever, 401,000 is what it is, but 108,000. And then we've got over 80,000 that they're trying to get through the PNPs. I think it's the PNPs that are going to be suffering, right? They're the ones that are going to be really struggling with everybody piling in through the federal program, right? So I'm curious to see, they were already kind of hit with the, uh, you know, with that big scoop uh, for 176. And, you know, I talked with uh, the, the acting director of the AINP after like literally days after that big draw, and she said, okay, we can kind of weather this one. And they had no idea they were going to scoop that deep. And they said, we can kind of weather this one. But I'll tell you, if they do this again, you know, some of the provinces, including us, we're going to be hurting. And I cannot see a difference between what they've just done right here right. and that big draw with 176. Um, you know, I think the consequences are going to be pretty, pretty steep for, for provinces. Um, but as far as the program itself, I don't think they're really going to do much to it. You know, they can manipulate it all they want within the existing framework. They want to drop the scores down. They can, if they want to add on some points for having a, you know, a, a great uncle, um, in Canada, well, they can do that. Right. So there's the flexibility built into that system, but I don't think there's going to be significant changes, but they've really been pushing French, right. They've really been pushing the, that advantage. And so that's where I'm curious to see where this is going to go. No caps. That's what I was telling LJ. He utilizes French skills <laughs> at this time. I wish I spoke better French or any French. Dude, we should start like French language schools. That's where the money's going to be internationally. <laughs> Mark, if you, if you have a if you have a video French class uh, and on immigration, I am there. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. All right. So why don't we let to, uh, get to know Mark a little bit, Will? Absolutely. So before this big announcement, our, our whole thing too was to bring Mark on the show to really learn his story because it is a fascinating one. Um, and Mark, we did go through your bio in some detail to prepare for this episode because we wanted to know who you were uh, and your story, uh, but really a remarkable one. So maybe we can start from the beginning of that. And, and, you, and you alluded to it at the beginning of the episode that you are a farm boy from Southern Alberta. Yep. And now you're working in immigration and working with migrant communities. Well, one would say that's a, a huge journey from one end to the other. But tell me about maybe the, the, the childhood and some of the things yeah. that inspired you along the way. Yeah, I guess we're all built by where we came from, our roots, right? Our experiences, they, they shape who we are. You know, we, we, uh, you know, we carry with us what our parents give us and then the environment that we're exposed to. And in the end, the opportunities that present themselves. Sometimes it's fate. Sometimes it's just darn hard work and, you know, just good luck. Um, sometimes I think, you know, there's some divine intervention at times, right? But at, at the end of the day for me, you know, if someone would have said back then that I'd be doing what I'm doing now, I would have told them they were crazy. 
but, uh, but yeah, I'm a farm kid and that's how I've always saw myself. Someone who's prepared to work hard when I need to, someone who is, believes in being 100% honest, um, who, who does not believe that money drives everything. And so I'm not influenced by those things. Um, I guess I'm not even influenced by, you know, I'm the national chair. Great. Well, what does that mean? Unless I'm actually using it to actually help people versus just putting on my resume. I don't care. It's meaningless. And, and as I've talked to a lot of people, even this year, um, you know, if no one remembers who served as the national chair from, you know, 20 to 21, I don't care. The, the reality is we're building something better and it's not about me. And that's how it's always been. So initially as a kid, yeah, I started on the farm, but sports will sports drove my life. I played everything. I loved it. I did track and field. I, you know, volleyball, I love basketball was actually my biggest passion of all. And so that's what drove my ship. And, and I was planning on being a high school phys ed teacher and, um, and then things happen. And, um, you know, I'm, you, you, you guys probably know I'm a Christian fellow. I believe in, in, uh, you know, uh, you know, doing whatever I'm asked to do. And when I was a young kid, I was, you know, it was suggested that I go serve a mission. So I went and lived in Portugal for two years, learned to speak Portuguese and, um, and basically was a kind of a proselyting missionary, a service missionary. And that's where I got exposed to the world. That's where this farm kid, this redneck farm kid got exposed to what the world was like, realizing that this world is a big place and the people on the other side of the ocean are not that much different than us. And um, when I came home from my mission, and that was way back in 94, um, I knew I wanted to do something that kind of tied in where I could use my language. Hmm. Uh, ironically, you know, I thought, well, maybe immigration, but I continued to pursue my ed degree. And I actually taught high school phys ed for a year before I went to law school. And, um, and then from there, it just, I got a job working on the border as an immigration officer in between um, years of, of law school. And, uh, and then I had the opportunity to work as what we called a, a pro bono slave for the hearings officers in Calgary while I was finishing up law school at UC. Now, I graduated from U of M, but by that time I had two children. Oh, and I should not neglect to mention my amazing wife who's put up with me throughout this over 20 years. Like we were, we were married in 95, Will. I'm an old dude. Like we are... <laughs> We're like we're talking 25 and we were supposed to go before the pandemic to Israel and have this wonderful 25th anniversary. But anyways, we'll leave that for another time. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, when I went to law school, I had two kids and, and uh, I was, I, I really needed to hit the pavement running and, and uh, I had the opportunity to work as an officer on the border. And that's what opened up immigration to me. And when I came and got a job with one of the national firms, um, it took me just about, well, probably about two months before I found the right person that would support me even as a summer student to kind of build the immigration practice there at the time. And no one knew anything about it. So, hey, it was great. I worked as an officer. So instantly I had credibility and they just assumed I knew way more than I actually did. And I didn't tell them different. So that's kind of how it started with my, uh, with my practice. It's somewhat of a, a whirlwind, but um, yeah, this is, it's, I, I'm doing what I love you guys. I, I would not wish to be in a different position in my life. And I think that's pretty unique and getting here, there's been some bumps along the road for sure, but yeah, I love what I'm doing. It's quite the journey and a lot of times that journey influences on how you actually do your practice. It actually brings me to my next point and question. Uh, starting your own Canadian immigration podcast, 
actually. You're, you're one of the first trailblazers, I want to say, in, in the field who um, started reaching out in social media, uh, essentially making it more accessible, very popular. You have approximately, what, 26,000 followers just on YouTube alone, for example? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're climbing. It's growing. Yeah. That's great. So um, how did that come along, actually? Well, it's pretty simple. So in 2014, I was on the national executive for the CBA as a member at large, and they revealed or released the initial, you know, gazette uh, that described this new expression of interest program. Mm. And so I, I was on one of the working groups. We were reviewing the regs. We were, we were uh, providing submissions and I got thinking to myself. And at this stage I was in, you know, I've always been in Lethbridge, um, at least from, I, I didn't get into that, but I was in Calgary for a little bit working with Gallings. And then my mother's getting older and my family was down here. And so I had to pull back home, right? We often get pulled back to our roots. And so when I left Gallings, I left all my immigration and I just became a general solicitor, but very quickly it just followed me. And so, um, so that was kind of the, yeah, how things were, how my practice kind of evolved and, and grew. So I decided to move back to, to Lethbridge to be closer to family. And, um, and everyone, when I moved back, said, you can't practice immigration. And I said, okay, well, whenever someone says I can't do something, that's when it really <laughs> motivates me to do it. So I said, well, to heck with that. I can do this. And so I had to be creative. And so initially, um, I did it the old school way. I got in my car. I drove to Calgary. Uh, anytime there was a Canadian Institute law conference or insight or any of them, I managed to get myself on as a speaker and I would go there. And that's how I would, you know, that's how I would build my practice, even though I was here. And then being in the smaller community at that time, there was lots of global firms that wanted Canadian um, correspondence to deal with the Canadian work. So I had a wonderful practice doing business immigration, but over time the world shifted, the big four kind of took over and everything changed and it wasn't as easy because I didn't want to join them. And so, um, so yeah, so I was here in Lethbridge, did the reviews of the initial proposals for express entry and saw an opportunity, but I also saw this horrific thing happening for all of the Filipino community that I knew and love here in Alberta who were going to get blindsided by this, that were not going to be prepared. And so I started off by writing blogs, the top five things you need to do now. Twice it crashed my website. And, uh, and I realized that in all of the, um, you know, once Express Entry ruled out, people were unaware, they were unprepared, and they weren't going to be able to qualify. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was trying to give them heads up in advance. And I do consult after consult with these wonderful people from the Philippines. And every time they came to my office, and I had one in Calgary, it was basically, well, there's nothing I can do for you. You know, if you've mm -hmm. come to see me a year ago, I could have fixed it. So then I discovered podcasting. And I realized, okay, this is totally inefficient. And I hated charging them after telling them, well, you're basically going to have to go home. So I created the podcast so that I could amplify the message and warn people in advance. And it wasn't even designed to really promote me. It was more just coming purely from, from a, uh, you know, just a, a, uh, from a standpoint of, of giving and helping. Right. And uh, so anyways, I started the Canadian Immigration Podcast with just me talking and it was just, okay, be aware. This is what you need to do now to prepare for express entry. It's coming. These are the changes that are going to happen. And, uh, and that's how the podcast got started. And that was my first introduction kind of to the world. And I could live anywhere in podcast. It didn't matter. So that's, that's the podcast side. That's wonderful. Wow. 
Mark, I have a question. Um, what would you tell a, a junior lawyer right now who is interested in, in doing this information sharing work, this, you know, either podcasting, writing, blogging, but are, are facing from their, be it employer or whoever pays their bills saying, get back on the billable work, show me the hours. Yeah. What, what is your advice for, for that? For awesome. Move, move from the firm. Ah. Well, leave them. Um, anyone who does not see that this is worthwhile or valuable, they're not interested in you as a lawyer. They're only interested in um, maximizing the, the profits in their pocket. And let's face it, what's the purpose of a partnership? The purpose of a legal partnership, yes, it's to mentor young juniors, but really it's to maximize the profits in the hands of the partners at the end of the, the day. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like it's a business. And if you're not making money, why the heck do you do it? At least from that kind of a standpoint, right? It's mm -hmm. such an undertaking to manage a firm. But for young lawyers, and you're trying to build your own world, especially in the pandemic, how are you supposed to, you can't go out for lunch with people. So this only just amplifies the importance of, of getting a presence. And Will, you're a perfect example. You guys are a perfect example. I love what you're doing. I'll support you till, as we say here, the cows come home. Like you guys are doing awesome, awesome things. And I love your blog, Will. Like, you know, you look at what Stephen Murins has been doing with his, you know, just so powerful. And so it's all about giving, right? You just give, give, give. And, you know, it's, you know, that when you do that, people just by the very nature, they can't help but like you, right? And when they know, like, and trust you because of the information you're giving, then they're in a position to say, I want to hire that dude, right? So, so I love what you're doing. And, and when you're putting, um, you know, when you're putting profits and the finances at the back and you're doing what's right for the sake of doing it, oh my goodness, the world is just open to you. So for young lawyers, this really is the future. And considering my background as a farmer, that's the only way I can describe it. It's like being a fruit farmer. So if you're gonna if you're gonna set up your nice cherry orchard or whatever, you know you're not gonna get any cherries that first year. Like the trees have to grow, they have to mature. This is slow stuff. But once it does, once you've built it, and it might take, like it took me literally six years, like 2014 until now, probably 2015 is when I really started doing it until I'm now seeing the full fruits of, of all those labors, hours of just answering people's questions for free and just curating groups. Like the one Facebook group I have is just crossed over 127,000. Wow. That is just wow. express entry. But when it started, it was me spending two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening before I went to bed, just answering every single person's question on there. And then it grew and grew and grew to the point I couldn't do it anymore. And then I discovered from the podcast video, <laughs> Facebook Live, <laughs> yeah. and that took me off in a whole other direction. But long answer to a short question, you as a young lawyer, you take whatever you can from the place you're at. If they're forward thinking and they're willing to you know, look at new ways of doing that are going to benefit you, awesome, go for it, stay with them, work with them, be patient. But if they're just shutting down, saying stupid things like, oh, don't waste your time doing that, hit the road. First, find another job before you leave, but, but look for an avenue where you can really grow and develop yourself. Wow, Mark, powerful words. Honestly, I really appreciate the uh, strong words on, uh, you know, um, cutting it out on your own. Um, thanks for that. And I just realized something that we're all in small firms, like all of us are sole practitioners, technically. And um, we're all virtual, I think, at this point. I mean, it might be circumstances out of the COVID. Um, for example, Will, 
Um, but, but you, Mark, I believe you transitioned to some form of virtual office uh, long before the pandemic did. Can you tell us yeah. something about that? Yeah, so obviously being in Lethbridge, the whole nature of my practice has really been virtual for all intents and purposes. <clears throat> I had a few clients here, but probably about 5% of my clients were actually in Lethbridge and 95% were outside. And really when you're dealing with business immigration, rarely do you see your clients anyways. And so when I got started, it wasn't really that, that big of a deal, but, but you, you, you look at this whole concept of, of virtual and cloud-based, well, that's where we're all going. And, um, and this concept of needing to be in an office, well, you look at the big four, like very rarely do the, at least EY I know in firms like that, you know, don't even really have your own office. It's just like plugging in and going and it's just very fluid. So those concepts are around. And we know that from an overhead standpoint, if you can cut the overhead out, well, it, it means that you don't have to charge the rates that you would otherwise, but it also means more, more dollars in your pocket. And for me, more time to be able to do pro bono work. And, um, you know, and, and so that's a big part of what we do within our firm as well is just pro bono work. But in, in December, so the, the story was I've had so many different configurations of firms trying to find the right piece. And this is kind of goes to what you said, Will. I've always tried to partner. I never wanted to practice on my own, but it's always been really hard to get a junior lawyer here in Lethbridge to just join me and just do immigration because technically it's a career limiting decision. And so I was always stuck with trying to partner with firms in Calgary. And I've had some great partners over the years, but nothing really fit right. And to the point where in 2017, in the beginning of it, I said, you know what, I'm going to go back. I'm going to do immigration, but I'm going to do other areas of the law too. And I joined a, a really, really nice regional firm here in Lethbridge and a nice, beautiful corner office, the beautifulest boardrooms. And after just about three years, I realized, you know what, immigration is what I love. And I kind of, I just decided this is where I'm going to go. And I started looking at things and I realized that I did not need an office period. And when I left, my two employees decided they were going to stay at the firm because they weren't sure if they wanted to do that. And that was December of 2019. And so I launched my firm from scratch, zero. And uh, technology, having a good plan, an idea of what you wanted to do, and already having this platform, it gave me the footing to, to kind of launch. And then all the lawyers now for, for my firm, and I just interviewed another great candidate. I think he's going to join me. Cross fingers, some having someone in Quebec with the firm. Um, wow. But, uh, but we'll be four lawyers. And with the model, I can, I can have anyone from anywhere across the country just plug in and be a part of the firm. And, you know, it's just, I just love it. So that's wonderful. And Mark takes it another level. I was actually just a small story. I was trying to send him a Christmas card over <gasps> Christmas. And I know most firms, like they have some sort of like mailing address or they've used, like I, I utilize uh, like a space sharing where you actually like utilize a front office. I couldn't find Mark's mailing card. So I'm going to have to give it to you hand delivered one, one day, but that is, I mean, he pushes the envelope in ways that I think some of us are scared to, right? There are, there are yeah. firms that are scared to give up their downtown real estate, scared to give up uh, a physical location or even a sign on their, on their door. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed that out, Will, because the reality is the nature of my practice is what allows me to do this. If I was a litigator, if I was, um, if I did a lot of appeal work, refugee work, it just wouldn't work. Like it would be really hard to have a virtual office without and, and do that kind of work. Um, I know that 
everybody's been kind of pushed now where the possibility of doing litigation, the modernization of the courts has, has opened the possibilities up of working in kind of out of your home, I guess. But um, the, because of the, the type of practice I had, that's what allowed me to do what I've done. And you know, I'm very deliberate. I, I, I specifically work with DIYers at heart. So if someone came to me and said, Mark, I just want you to deal with my whole express entry application front to end, I'd actually refer him to you, Will or Lou. I'd refer him to you guys because I, I've, I've completely shifted the model and um, my model is more collaborative or consultative than it is traditional representative. And I think I've been pushed largely because of what immigration has been doing over the last few years. You know, and even, um, probably I shouldn't bring it up too much, but if we look at our code, like we look at the code of professional conduct that we all sign off on, except you guys in Ontario, most of us, we can't share our logins to the, um, the portal, the rep portal with any paralegals. Like we can't, We've, they, that's a part of our code. But I wonder how many of the firms out there do that. So I just said, screw it. I'm not going to do this anymore. I removed all the paralegals, all the, you know, the support, uh, the traditional legal support. And now I work directly with my clients, which I absolutely love. And they really become the paralegals. I teach them how to do it, give them access to the courses that I'm creating. And then I just review what they've done, which some people probably makes them, some lawyers a little bit uncomfortable and that's totally fine. Everybody has to find what they're okay with. But for me in Lethbridge, you know, I litigation was never, you know, the whole appeal side of things was never really an option for me. And so I've had to be creative and yeah. So I'm pushing the envelope a little bit, I guess. We call it the train the trainer model too. It's, it's actually like an, an HR model and it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's a wonderful model. Mark, I do have one last question though, before we hit our policy ponder party. You mentioned yeah. you're in Lethbridge. You mentioned you put family first. As someone who is uh, going to be the a dad in the next couple of weeks, and I'm <sighs> scared and nervous and all those feelings, uh, how have you been able to do it, Mark? Uh, and so well, and I see your family pictures all the time. And I'm like, yeah. what's the secret sauce? Yeah. <laughs> do you know what? The secret sauce is understand that you're going to be a miserable failure, that you are going to make mistakes all the time. And, and if you ask my kids, they would definitely not say that I was some kind of super dad. The, the reality is they know that I love them. They know that I own it when I screw up and I don't, I'm not a hypocrite. And I think that's the, the biggest thing. So you do the very, very best to walk the, the talk. And as long as they can see that you're genuine and you're not just saying one thing and doing something else, then they buy into you know, what you're trying to teach them, you know, to be good human beings, to care about people to not be self-centered. And that's one thing, you know, my kids, even when two of my oldest now have gone on missions and both of them saved their, their own money to go, they both got jobs and yeah, I could have maybe helped out and contributed and I did, but, but just that instilling that value of work and understanding that nothing, you're not entitled to anything, take responsibility, stand up and, you know, and make the world better, right? Because there's so much, so much negativity out there you know, in the media all over about just how everything is just so, so awful. And we tend to gravitate to that when there's so many amazing things going on in the world. We just don't look at them. So, you know, teaching your kids to, to keep a positive outlook and to work hard, boy, like you're, you're 90% of the way there if you can do that. And your will, I know you, I followed you, man. I can see what you've been doing with yourself. I can, I can see. Last what five years. Doing. I haven't thank you, Mark, because you were one of the ones who, yeah. who really invested in, in giving me a, 
an early platform to share my story. And I still get people, I, I tell Marcus mm-hmm. all the time that contact me because of that 2016, I believe, interview yeah. where I was just honest and raw because I was just coming out and I was like, here's the reality of a life as an immigration lawyer. And, and, and still today it inspires people. And thanks to Mark for giving that yeah. platform. And you guys, you guys are going to leave me in the dust. Like I, I'll give you about a year and then you'll be well beyond what I'm doing. You know, you, you guys have got like the sky's the limit. You guys are doing everything right. And uh, just so cool. Yeah. I'm just grateful to be here on yours. Thank you. You know, telling, we, 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 we appreciate your stories and, and how you're going in, in deep on things. And that's what our platform is too, right? To give us a chance to step away sometimes from business and talk about mm-hmm. things related to it, such as family, such as your, yeah. your, your, your faith and, and things that yeah. are really core to, to who you are. All right, LG, do you want to introduce the Policy Ponder Party? I'm a little bit parched. That was an appeal prep all the way. <laughs> yeah, don't you have like- Eight-hour appeal prep. I wish I was doing eight hours of consultations. That's a really nice uh, way to round up this whole uh, discussion on introducing Mark and getting to know him better. Honestly, I've been following Mark's career for a long time. Will's as well. We knew each other vicariously, um, Will and I. And Mark, I met him officially first time in a CBA conference. Um, I'm not sure, Mark, if you remember, but back in 2019, just before you left your firm over in Lethbridge, we spoke mm-hmm. on the phone. We were talking about uh, yep. the predecessor yep. to Clio Grow. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So, so that, that was fun. Cause like, uh, you know, I, I felt like at that point I was a bit alone in terms of like trying to set up some things virtually. Cause I was transitioning from having an office to having none at all. So that, that was, uh, that was a very comforting, uh, in this section, uh, we call it the policy ponder party. And today it's actually very, very appropriate because of what happened today. And I think you can talk about the relationship between the CBA and Immigration Refugee Citizenship Canada um, in terms of uh, policy relations, in terms of policy discussions and submissions. We can also talk about technology because uh, I know that that's something that really interests you. And, yeah. um, you know, in the, the world of DIYing things, yeah. I think this is very important to highlight. So, um, Will, why don't you start it off uh, with the first point? All right. So, Mark, in today's immigration practice, where most people don't see it necessary to hire a lawyer or they're messaging saying that, you know, individuals shouldn't hire lawyers, what should clients know about the current systems and the coming changes? Yeah. So one of the most important things, like, I love it when people are engaged in their own applications. Like, that's where really you can, you can create something that you know is going to get approved. The challenge I have is when people are not engaged and they say, oh, here, just do it for me, right? And so I'm never concerned about people who want to do it themselves. And my goodness, if there's anything that we want to learn how to do, what do we do? We go to YouTube and search it up, right? And there's something that tells us how to do just about everything. And as we always talk about, what can you trust and what can't you? And one of the biggest dangers that I see with people who just want to do it themselves, and it's not themselves, it never is. They're relying on hundreds of hours of research on Facebook pages, on forums, on WhatsApp groups, that's where they're getting their information. So no one's ever doing it on their own. Um, But what happens is you have some people who successfully immigrate and they are then in a position where they think, ah, I know how to do it. So now I'm gonna explain to everybody else how you can do it yourself and you don't need help from anyone else. But there's one factor that no one considers. The officer reviewing that application could have overlooked something, could have made a mistake and approved it. 
And then this person feels like this, and I've had so many examples, I won't go into it, but so many examples of where people have relied on someone else's advice because they did it the way they did it. And then another officer who has a clue, who wasn't overwhelmed that day, realizes, oh, wait a minute, this isn't right. And, uh, and then refuses the application. And then where do you have to go? So for me, there's no problems with wanting to do it on your own and having control. And that's kind of what I've married with my offering is to really partner with people that want to learn and I teach them and educate them. And then when we do it together, oh my goodness, things don't get missed. Not like when you're, you know, there's these silos of unknown between a paralegal and the client and you and deadlines. And so for people who want to do it on their own, the thing that an immigration lawyer gives, well, we've talked about it and we don't need to be kind of patting ourselves on the back you know, it's a, it's a hard slug to get through law school and, you know, and you have to have a certain level of ability to get there in the first place. But then after you're through, you know, then that's where the separation is. And I think most immigration lawyers are not in it for the money, Will. And, and Lou, you can attest to this too. Like we're not some rich guys running around with our money falling out of our pockets. We do this because of the, the, um, the rewards that come that are, that are non-monetary. And uh, we do it because we love making a difference in people's lives. So, you know, the money grubbing lawyer concept really doesn't apply very well to us, especially when we know what other representatives charge that are quite comparable to what we do. But for people who want to do it themselves, the advantage to using a lawyer is that you've got someone who really understands the law, not just learning off of the backs of previous clients or, you know, trying to use their experience to teach you. We can actually read the law, understand it, interpret it, and then understand also if an officer makes the wrong decision and refuses your application, we don't accept that. We don't say, oh, that's too bad, resubmit. We're like, screw that, that's wrong. Okay, here's what we're gonna do to push back, right? Um, but, but I think ultimately people who, who do understand the value of a lawyer, mm-hmm. I think they get it. And, uh, and people who, I found traditionally that want to do it themselves have just never really had any other alternatives. It's either give everything to the lawyer and, and don't really have any involvement in the application or do it myself. And that's the difference. That's what I'm trying to change is to say, no, there's actually a, a happy medium right in between where you get the both, uh, the best of both worlds. So. Mm-hmm. Mark, yeah. a, a quick follow-up question to that. And then I'll, I'll let LJ ask a question too. Um, right now, one of the big challenges of, doing the work that you do, which is incredible. We are up, you know, clients are meeting us. They're not going through agents. They're not going through assistants. They're not going through surveys to ask questions or questionnaires. You're providing that advice to them. But we're also doing work that is traditionally called review work, where we don't, you know, take full representation and the clients are submitting on their own with our guidance and advice. What would your recommendation to IRCC be? about making this system better and, and, and frankly, allowing it to conform more with our ethics codes and with all the things yeah. that exist in our practice. Yeah, so we've seen a real trend, Will, for immigration to kind of consider representatives as an afterthought. We've seen a lot of changes with the online citizenship, the landing portals, a lot of things that are now moving, even Alberta, like our immigrant nominee program is completely cut out representatives. And so there's a real trend towards that. Now, there's a lot of reasons why that's happening. Um, you know, a lot of reasons. And I'm not going to get into some of the more controversial ones, at least that we as, as lawyers feel are contributing to the problem. But, but, but the reality is for, for immigration, they need to understand that we are an integral part of the process. 
and we actually make their lives easier. You know, when people come through us, we can screen people out that don't have a chance. So they're not submitting applications that really don't have any chance of success. And so that's one advantage, but also putting together a well-prepared application is, is a critical component to making an officer's life easy. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes, you know, and it's hard with lawyers too, because we're the ones um, that are on the other side of the trench in, in the trench warfare, right? Because when we don't see something going kind of the way that we think should be for our clients, we make their life a little bit more difficult. And so that creates this tension between us sometimes and the officers. And sometimes we can be arrogant too, Will. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we can really be arrogant when we're, when we think we understand the law better than the officer and we take great pains to demonstrate to them that they don't know what they're doing. That's not a real a good recipe for a good working relationship. And so we've created it ourselves sometimes, just being a little bit um, overbearing, I guess, in how we approach things. We could be a little nicer, I think, as, as lawyers. And, and you'd be amazed at being kind, like how far it gets you with the most crotchety, angry, you know, just almost borderline abusive border officer. Like when you're just kind, it's amazing how they kind of soften, but mm -hmm. not always taught to be that, right? So. Absolutely. I was just saying that I, I think there is a huge access to justice role played by lawyers who help out on specific parts in limited scope retainers. And I think that the system can do a better job in helping us facilitate this important work. Because even right now with the discussion of whether to include the use of representative form or not, uh, and, and, and whether the client themselves has to, has to disclose. In some cases, they don't want to disclose that they, they, they see, saw a lawyer, right? And they want to do it themselves with just a little bit of input. So I think that there's ways that the system can also help yeah. facilitate. It's, it's interesting, a, 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 a great colleague, I won't mention her by name, but she just recently showed me what she does on her use of representative forms. And I loved it and I adopted it. And, um, and basically, you know, she, she, she literally lists right in there on top of the form, I am not a representative. I provided consultative advice and she doesn't even sign the form. And by the email adder, she says, do not, you know, do not send any correspondence. I am not representing this individual, but I'm disclosing that I, they consulted with me. It was a brilliant idea because, you know, over the last little while, especially as we've transitioned to more of a review model, I'm getting all the correspondence for all my spousal sponsorships that we reviewed and submitted. And I included a use of rep. And even though all the correspondence was supposed to go to the client, it's now coming to me and that's fine. You know, so now I'm just, you know, unpaid kind of pro bono, here's the next step. And, you know, but I've learned there's little, little tricks that you can use to try to clarify to them that distinction. So. Yeah, to circle back to Will's point earlier, and I think really rounds it up perfectly. Uh, we were talking about that uh, uh, when we were uh, writing the script for this episode. Um, that is interesting that the uh, representative uh, system with IRCC kind of looks at it from a binary perspective, whether you're in or you're out. Um, I think that's kind of like where Will was going with this question. What are your thoughts on like essentially creating that gray zone within IRCC, um, Mark? Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, guys. I don't know if I have an answer for that. I'll be honest. You know, I there with the whole nature of how we practice. There are so many different ways in which you can represent and support a client to get the result they want. And um, you know, as I look at you know, even within express entry itself, 
the ability that we have to communicate the challenges that we've had with the, with the, um, the web form updates and use of reps being rejected. You know, this is something that we've discussed directly with Minister Menachino in our, in our uh, CBA executive meetings uh, that we've had with him. And, and so I know that they're wrestling with uh, crappy representatives, you know, people who are exploiting others. And, and when I look at all of this, trying to find that balance, I don't know if I have the right answer. I don't know if I can, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't think I can, that's when I can give you guys a, a really solid answer. I'm, but that's the answer, Mark. I think it's just that it's complicated. Like yeah. the reality is you can't just like, uh, you know, um, give a straight answer to that because you're right. They're wrestling with a lot of different issues, different perspectives, and you have to balance that. Yeah. But um, let's shift a little bit, actually. Um, so if um, you were able to identify three of the biggest pain points that IRCC would have, whether it's regarding technology, operations, and you were given a free hand, what would you do? These policy questions, I'll tell you, you know, <laughs> a free hand to make changes within immigration. Um one of the things that I would do would be to open up communication. That's the first thing. So there's been this massive push to, to cut off all lines of communication uh, in order to improve efficiency, you know, expedite processing. And I understand that when you have, there's a cost to having people available. But my goodness, when I look at the train wreck that's happened this past year, whether it's spousals or other things like that, where you know, people have, there's been applications that have been refused improperly. People have fallen out of status, their ability to work, all these things, you know, because of what happened with the, the paper applications being shelved in boxes. It just, when I look at that, it just, I don't know. Um, that's first and foremost, that's, that's one thing that without a doubt, I would, um, uh, I, I would, I would open up those lines. And I can still remember when Kenny, at the time, decided to close all the smaller offices. It was all part of this centralization even the office in Lethbridge, we had an immigration office here and they closed that and centralized it to Calgary. But I think that's one thing that I would change is open up an ability for people to actually communicate. Um, because I think in the long run, it, 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 like, I don't think the expediency is worth it. I don't really think it is. And so, um, yeah, for sure, that would be, that would be one thing. And, you know, there, you've got so many things on this, this wish list that you'd like to see different. Um, personally, I wish there wasn't so much animosity between council and the stakeholders and immigration. You know, we've come a long way with the, with the department these days, a long way. Our relationship has never been better with them. But I think collaborating and working together with stakeholders and really listening to them mm -hmm. makes a huge, huge difference when it, when it comes to the development of solid, reliable policy to drive the ship. And sometimes when decisions are made in a vacuum without consulting with people that are on the ground, um, I think things are missed. And then it creates more problems sometimes than if they would have just, you know, yeah. just sought advice and direction. And it's interesting because I guess I should, I should probably say with that advice that, um, that, that immigration should continue down the trend that they're going because they really yeah. have, guys, they really have been good and very open and full, full marks for them. IRCC. CBSA, not so much. And um, I've got my own kind of feelings on why they tend to be a little bit more closed off. But, um, but I think generally speaking, that's, those are two things anyways, that I, 
personally would like, there's so many things you could pick out and you could pull apart within each of the different programs and the way things are done. But, but at a very, very high level, those are two things that I would probably identify for myself as a wish list. Wow. Actually, that just reminds me of like LJ and I were invited uh, to join a small focus group panel and we we did share a presentation to IRCC policymakers where we shared the very message mark that you said that communication and accessibility uh, and being able to resolve one's problems. We talked about self reps unable to even submit a web form that is received so that they can fix something they did wrong. Uh, is a problem. And I think they were very receptive to it and, and, and it led to a, a good conversation, which is what we wanted to do. So Mark, I think you touched on uh, wonderful points and, and we share those as well uh, in our thoughts. Awesome. awesome. So the fun part of our show, uh, we yeah. call the light around where we really take our guests through uh, fun questions, sometimes games in your case, it, these are questions that kind of reflect your bio and your, and your life story. Uh, but we thought we'd pitch in as well. Um, Question one, you own a restaurant and you have to feature the best of Alberta and the best of Portugal on a plate. What are you serving and why? Okay, so hands down, it's gotta be steak and potatoes, okay? And, and if I'm thinking about like Alberta, it's gotta be Alberta beef, all right? And potatoes, just because you can't have one without the other. And then pastéis de natas on the side for dessert. But I would put it right in with the main meal. And pastéis de natas, it's like this cream-filled pastry that's baked. And it's just, oh, it's so rich and just delicious. And I found some in Costco of all places that oh, weren't wow. too bad. But from Portugal, those, those the pastéis de nata, mm, absolutely. That hands down, that's what I do. Yeah. It's funny, Will, that whenever we're in the lightem round, that we're both hungry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, I'm just like, my mouth is watering it. I'll actually share, Mark, my answer was steak as well, because of course, from Alberta, I, I think yeah. I went to a place called Ruth's and I was like, steak is, Ruth's, yeah. yeah. Oh, I was Ruth's like, oh, steak incredible house. steak. Yeah. And then I was like, we, we got to put an egg tart on, on there somewhere as well, probably. Uh, it, looks like we have a, it looks like we have a consensus here. I was going to say steak yeah. as well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a good question. We want to go number two, LJ? Sure. What's your worst memory of PE class? Since, you know, you taught PE and you were so much into sports, I'm actually just curious. What's the worst? What's the opposite spectrum to that? So, so the worst, so you're talking about the worst memory of me teaching in a physical education class or being in it itself or? Either or. Either or. Either oh, or. Hands down, distance running. Distance Ooh. running. I hated running long distance. And I did a lot of track. And there was always these beginning where we all had to run and build up our core and our cardio. I'm like, freak, I'm a high jumper. Okay. But anyways, that was the worst running, running long distance. And all of my distance runners and, and like, they're awesome. They're, they're great, great, great guys. But I kept telling them, look, by the time you're done your 10 K, you know, race, you're so exhausted. That you don't even, you don't have the energy to celebrate. And so, uh, <laughs> so there you go. There's my, there's the worst memory of P classes is, uh, is distance running. <laughs> well, LJ, you go first. I, I need to think about this a little. <laughs> uh, being picked for basketball. Cause I, you know, I'm the anti-Filipino here actually. Cause <laughs> you probably both know the Filipinos love their yeah, basketball. They love, they love it. Yep. Lot into that. So um, yeah, sorry guys. <laughs> so that was my worst memory, being picked for basketball class. Yeah. yeah. Wow. 
I'm gonna go with the uh, the sit and reach test. I think that's. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> I think it's a biased test. I think it didn't take into account like certain genetic, you know, short arm problems um, that people had. But no, I was I barely touched the box every time, and it was quite embarrassing. So I, yes. I put the sit and reach test. Nice. That's a classic. That's a classic. <laughs> it is one. That and the 12 minute run, like how many laps you could do, I was always like, not, not. not. <laughs> awesome. Wait, up, our last one of, uh, go ahead, Mark, you're saying? Oh, no, I was, no, I was just going to say I have very fond memories. Well, no, they're not fond, but of, of the 12 minute run. Oh, yes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. I was always the slowest one in my class. So it's, uh, Speaking of which, pandemic need to get back in shape. I don't know what you're doing, Mark, but you're looking oh. much younger than your years, and I'm uh, going yeah. <laughs> I I put on so much weight. Well, I'm actually I'm back on kind of a program to try to curb my my Netflix slash snacking in the evenings to try to get you know get back into shape. So, uh, but today was no lunch. It was so busy. I didn't even have time to stop for lunch. So I'm looking forward to getting something to eat here in a little bit. Take a potato. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Steak and potato. Steak yeah. and potato. I, I want that too. So last question. Uh, tell me your favorite border story, either when you were working there or if it was a client story and you accompanied them as a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite border story? Okay. So I'm a summer student and this guy comes in and in, in that port of entry, the immigration, it was before 2002. So I worked 2000, well, right 2002 when the legislation changed. But the, at that time, it wasn't CBSA. Immigration was separate from, uh, from Canada Customs. And so they would do the search and seizure on, 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 the, on, on the road, like down on the main level, and they would refer people up to us uh, for the sec, you know, secondary examination. And uh, in the carway port of entry, there's, it's a two-story. And, uh, you know, and I, I can still remember being back in uh, one of the corner offices. We didn't have anything to protect ourselves in case we had crazy people. And... Um, and we had this little buzzer under the desk that we could buzz if we you know, needed the customs guys to come up with their billy clubs because I don't think anyone was armed at that stage. Anyway, so I was interviewing this guy and his story just didn't make sense. So I said, okay, well, let's, let's go back. He's, he was from the US and he was coming back to Canada. Um, I can't remember. For, to, he was doing something. I can't remember what he was doing. But anyways, his story just wasn't matching up. And so I painstakingly went through like, oh, and so where were you born? And then where did you go to elementary school? Like, the whole pattern all the way through, just trying to identify what the issue was. In the end, his, his answers were just questionable enough to, to ask the customs to go do a search on his vehicle. And as it turns out, this guy had a warrant out for his arrest for attempted murder. And, um, and the RCMP came and, and picked him up. Fortunately, he, you know, he was doing a good job with his with his story. He'd actually fled to the U.S. and was there for about three years, and so the warrant was there, and he was now coming back to Canada. And he was a Canadian, and um, he was he had a driver's license from the U.S. and everything. And that was the craziest story was was going through the interviews and and and, and getting someone who had a warrant out for for uh, attempted murder. So there you go. That was the highlight of a summer uh, border student. Now they don't ever hire summer students to do what I did, but nothing yeah. but a buzzer wow yeah yeah <laughs> all right on that note mark thank you so much for sharing your time with us tonight i know that i picked up a lot uh, of inspiration of energy and uh, i guess like the impetus to keep moving forward how about you will 
Absolutely. I think Mark is pushing law in a, in a whole new direction. Uh, it's redefining our jobs. And it's also, I mean, he inspired our podcast. So just as like, you know, a, a closing note, thank you, Mark. You are an inspiration to both of us. And uh, we look forward to more collaboration down the road as we... That is- that's my, my absolute pleasure. I truly do consider it a privilege to be here. You guys are doing things right. It's so cool. Um, and yeah, I really, really appreciate this opportunity. That means a lot, Mark. Thank you so much. You bet. Okay, guys, take care. Take care. All right. So I guess it's my turn to do real talk this week. And um, this week, um, I'm going to stay on theme. And uh, I wanted to talk about aversion to expertise. And essentially a call to action to fellow practitioners in the field of immigration law. First of all, nowadays, there is a growing tendency for immigration applicants to do their own applications on their own for better or for worse. Uh, Mark also highlighted the fact that specific systems, whether it be the IRCC or even um, provincial nomination programs, actually pr uh, provide platforms where basically, <laughs> funny enough, uh, practitioners such as ourselves are deplatformed. We're not considered, we're an afterthought. And this is in stark contrast to uh, the fact that immigration continues to grow more and more complicated over time. And as immigration professionals, Mark, Will, and I are witnesses to how immigration continues to become just difficult. And not just for the applicants, but also for practitioners, but actually, in fact, the decision makers and immigration policymakers themselves. And this is why it's kind of counterintuitive to think that more people are resorting to doing applications on their own, even if the risks are growing. The consequences are tremendous. And usually it's one kick in the can, you get one kick, that's your best, best try, and that's it. Some people are aware of these risks, others are not. So essentially, well, tonight, I'd like to do a call to action not to hire us, not necessarily, no. Rather, this is a call to action of sharing our toolkit as immigration practitioners to immigration applicants, essentially tweaking the business model, um, changing, shifting things around in the practice of law to help, at the end of the day, our clients, to help them approach their immigration application with the knowledge and the tools that we as immigration lawyers normally would have. This really... Um, punctuates the uh, shift in the last few years, I would say the past decade since the 2008 financial crisis, where a lot of firms have been steadily adapting to the new technological realities, to this, um, let's say, uh, disinterest and um, I say, you know, dissociation and diffusion from points of authority, such as, you know, lawyers, for example, and people will naturally do things on their own. Uh, our job as you know, custodians of access to justice, for example, is to help them, to equip them with the right tools in order to actually achieve their goals, whether that be by what Mark is doing or what, what, what Will is doing, and hopefully what I'm also doing for my own clients. And that is Real Talk tonight. Thank you so much. Very, very powerful. And actually, that leads to our closing today of telling you about our next episode. We are planning to present to all of you that presentation we were talking about a couple weeks ago to IRCC, because we think that it's important that what we tell stakeholders is also what we tell our other stakeholders in terms of our clients. Uh, and, and we're gonna present essentially what we presented to them, but from a client perspective of what they should know and of what they should be aware of. 
And as well, we're going to dig deeper and deeper into that new change because the government's new program mm -hmm. worth discussing. Okay? We were just scratching the surface. Uh, and to dive into next, week top, next week's topic, uh, Will will be talking about post-graduation work permits. I'll be talking about transitions for healthcare workers. Absolutely. We look forward to the next episode. There'll be no guest, but you're going to see a little bit more of back and forth from all of us talking about the policy changes and impacts that matter you and your family. And hopefully we'll share a few of our own stories as well during that time. Thanks for listening and thanks for watching. This is Imlight episode five.